Now, welcome to the most controversial passage. Verse 4. It is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, and the miracles of the coming age, and then have committed apostasy to renew them again to repentance since they are crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again and holding Him up to contempt. This is one of the scariest passages in the Bible. I think one of the scariest passages is when they all come to Jesus and say, when did we see you hungry and naked and and did not visit you? And He said, when you do it, do do it for them. You didn't do it for me. Depart from me. They thought they knew God and they didn't. That's scary. And this says this. He lists a couple of things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with... I'm going to talk about the end before we talk about the beginning so I can unpack the end even more. Before we talk about the list of the things, he says, for those people who've experienced... There's a couple of things I want to say. First, many, many, many people misunderstand this passage for two major reasons. One... They interpret the passage through their emotions. This is a very, very important, very easy passage and most commonly interpreted through emotions. Because what it's going to say is it's impossible for somebody to repent. And people don't want to think about their loved ones as not being able to repent, so they say that can't be it. Two, you must interpret it through its context. Many, many, many people will jump right into here and start interpreting these verses and they haven't even read the first six chapters of Hebrews or really seriously studied them and unpacked them. I've even read commentaries where they immediately just stop, like, or journal articles where they just say Hebrews 6 and they go right into it and start interpreting. You're like, you didn't talk about anything in the first six chapters. You can't do that. Okay? It's like walking in the middle of a conversation, you're lost. But even more so, because this is deep. This is not about your trip to the mall. So you must understand the context. The other thing you must understand is every single scholar, and I don't care whether you're the most conservative, legalistic Christian or the most liberal non-Christian, and there are lots of non-Christians who are atheists who actually write commentaries on the Bible, which I think is always very interesting. Um, but the reality is, I don't care who you talk about, every single scholar agrees that every single warning passage gets harsher and harsher. It escalates. And the sin gets worse and worse and worse. So if the last warning passage was warning against the sin of unbelief that leads to eternal death, then that means this warning passage has to be worse than that. It has to be harsher warning than that and a greater sin than that. Does that make sense? Every scholar agrees with that. And I've read commentaries where a scholar says, this has to be a much greater sin than the one that we previously talked about. And then they go and unpack it and start talking about how this sin is actually less than the ones before it. You, you can't do that. Okay, just because you've got a PhD doesn't mean you're consistent all the time. Okay, and so every scholar agrees with that. The other thing I want to say is this, is that this passage, I don't care who you talk to, Everybody agrees that this passage says it is impossible for you to repent. Now that's, that's the area that really bothers us. And it should. I don't care who you talk to, I don't care what view you take, 
you must accept the fact that it's, it's impossible for you to repent. And we don't talk that way in the church. It's never too late to repent. It's never impossible to repent. But this says it is impossible to repent. And it emphasizes that impossibility by saying, because it would require Christ to be crucified again. That's serious impossibility. Because Hebrews in chapter 9 is going to go on and say, and Christ died once and for all. Period. There is no other sacrifices. Because if Christ has to die again, then that means his sacrifice was not sufficient. And it is sufficient, therefore there's one-time sacrifice, which means you're never going to see a sacrifice again. So if this sin requires him to be sacrificed again, then you can't be forgiven of this sin. You can't repent from it. So I don't care what view you take. And, and because some people are, well, well, what's impossible for us is possible with all people. There's a problem with that. Because if you go on later in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8, it says, It is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 4, 10, 4 says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, if it's possible for the blood of goats, well, all things are possible with God. Well, if it's possible for God to make the blood of a goat to take away your sins, then Christ isn't necessary. And it's impossible to please God without faith. Well, you're in really dangerous water if you say you can please God with your own works. After everything the Bible said. So three other times, the author of Hebrews says, this is what impossible means. So that means you have to define impossible that way. Which means it can't happen. Period. Especially when he re-emphasizes with saying, Christ would have to die again and that's not going to happen. Because you're re submitting him to this horrible disgrace. And that's not going to happen. He's been vindicated. There's no coming back from vindication. Does that make sense? So let's dive in now. What does it mean to be this person? For those who have been enlightened, the word enlightened just means eureka, I find. The light bulb goes off and I understand something. I for the first time, it can be used in the mystery religions, which was the, the philosophical religions of Plato and Aristotle and all that kind of stuff, which totally was without all by works. Um, it was used as this idea of, in the mystery religions, they believed that you could save yourself through knowledge. They, they believed the problem was ignorance. And as long as you had enough education and then experiential knowledge, you could then lead this world and become God through your own knowledge. So basically, if knowledge is power, then I am a god. And that's what they believe. And we kind of have that in America because we believe that we can like educate you out of every problem that there is in America. Now, education's good. I'm a teacher. But it's not the solution to sin and the problems of the world. And so in mystery religions, it was. Plato said, if you knew something, you will automatically act upon it. Period. Well, then why do all my doctors still smoke? Okay, so not all of them, literally, but... Okay, so the reality is this. That's what it meant. The enlightenment was I discovered a knowledge that opens up my eyes to a greater truth and reality beyond this. So the Christians coming out of the mystery religion world who are trying to bring mystery religion people into Christianity use that word enlightenment. As in, I have been enlightened to a greater truth of who Christ is and that's what gives me eternal life. So that's what that means. Tasted the heavenly gift. 
Well, it means that you've tasted the heavenly gifts. The gifts from heaven have come down, and you partake. Some people want to say the taste just means you sampled a little bit, but you didn't quite devour and eat it. That's not what it means. It means taste, because it says that Christ tasted death. Well, he didn't sample death a little bit. He died. Okay, so it means you you ate it, you consumed it, it became a part of you. The heavenly gifts. Well, what are the heavenly gifts? That's another question. Become the partakers of the Holy Spirit. You're partaking in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit's indwelled you. Saul partook of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came upon him, he partook of it so much that he actually began to prophesy and maybe even speak in tongues. And yet God made it very clear, Saul is not following me. Saul will be judged. Saul will be killed. In fact, God took the Holy Spirit away from Saul, and then Saul died a judgment of condemnation. And then David said, take not that. When David committed a huge sin to, thinking back to Saul, he said, Oh God, please do not take thy Holy Spirit away from me. And it was possible to lose the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit in the First Testament only came on you and clothed you because without the blood of Christ, you can't have it come into you. So when we sing that song in our praises, they used to back in the 80s and 90s, don't take that Holy Spirit, you can't sing that anymore because you've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. And you've been, you can't be condemned anymore. And so that, that line, and that's a great song, but that line is borderline heretical for us today as believers with the blood of Jesus Christ. So, particularly the Holy Spirit can just mean you're experiencing the Holy Spirit in some way. It doesn't necessarily mean indwelling. It just means you're, you're, you're in it. You're part of it in some kind of a way. And so, become part of the Holy Spirit. Taste the good Word of God. You can taste the Word of God can mean any kind of things. It means that you're reading it and you're like, wow, this is really good. It can mean that it's actually happening in your life. It means it's actually transforming you. We don't. It just means that you're, you're getting in the Word of God. And, um, and the miracles of the coming age. Well, the coming age is just a word for the future to come. The kingdom of God that God's bringing to the earth. Okay, so, here's a question. There's a couple views on this passage. The first view is this. Some say that this is clearly talking about a Christian. And that with this Christian, you've been enlightened, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you've tasted the Word of God, it's in you right now, you taste the gifts of heaven, which is salvation, and then you reject it, and it's impossible for you to ever be saved again. Now, some people even go so far as to say, well, you can lose it and get it back, and lose it and get it back again, but then that violates it. It's impossible to ever come back to repentance. So they take this very seriously and they say, you can be saved and you can lose it. And if you lose it, it is impossible for you to ever repent again because you accepted it, which required Christ's sacrifice. And if you lost it, the only way you can be saved is if Christ is crucified. Therefore, he would have to be crucified again for you. Therefore, you can't be saved again. Now, there are some problems with this. One is the big one that this is the only verse that kind of even hints at that possibility where the Bible overwhelmingly makes it clear that you have assurance. I mean, over and over the Bible says there is no condemnation for those of Christ Jesus. I am convinced that neither life nor heaven nor hell or anything above or below can separate you from the love of God. You've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on and says, I write this so you will be assured. I write this so you will be assured. I, write I mean, almost every New Testament writer says that. And so we can go on and on and on, and that's a much bigger package to unpack. 
of what it means, but that's impossible. It cannot be loss of salvation because then you're seriously threatening the assurance of salvation. And what that inadvertently begins to do then is if I can lose my salvation, then that begins to push me into a works-oriented salvation. Because now I have to work at keeping my salvation because it is possible for me to lose it. Because obviously if you love God, you're going to keep pursuing Him. And if you lose your salvation and you love God to come back, then your heart's not enough. And now it's all about works. So even without the Bible, it just doesn't logically make sense. And then with the Bible, there's an overwhelming amount of passages. And if you want all those, a lot of those hardcore verses, then go to the notes on page 35 on the website. And I've listed out a whole bunch of passages. And I think everybody in this room would agree with that one. And if you're struggling with that, then please talk to your pastor or me or someone, because this is a very important thing. The second possible view is this is a loss of rewards. That you're losing your rewards in heaven. But there's a problem with that. If you lose your rewards, it doesn't require Christ to be re-crucified to get rewards back. And nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that you get one set of rewards and then you lose them and that's it. Rewards are based on a continuous relationship with God. And the whole point of rewards, too, is that you're giving them to God and to worship and praise. And the other thing, this doesn't fit the escalation of the passage. How can we go from, they did not have belief, therefore they died, and God in His wrath condemned them to, you just lose some rewards. That doesn't work. And then when we get to chapter 10 and chapter 12, those passages are even downright horrifically more scary than this. So we go from like unbelief, eternal damnation to lots of rewards back to unbelief, eternal damnation. That doesn't fit the escalation. So it can't be a loss of rewards. No word. And, 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 and if it requires a re-crucifixion of Christ to get reward, then you've, I feel like that's just demeaning the Christ. Like, so Christ's death was necessary for you to be saved out of hell into a right relationship with God because you've so horribly offended Him with your sin. But then to get rewards, it requires another crucifixion. So now you've taken your eternal salvation from your horrific, sinful, rebellion, death state against God and put it equal up to rewards for your obedience and faith. Because they both require the crucifixion of Christ. That ends up spitting... That's that's a horrific spit in the face of the cross, I think, to make those two things equal. And so it, it doesn't fit. The next one is hypothetical. Some people say, well, this does mean that you're saved. You can lose your salvation. But because we all know that's impossible... It's just hypothetical. God is just saying, if it were possible, then this is what it would be. That's why it's so horribly evil for you to not to do this sin, so don't do it. Well, that's a big problem. Because the more and more you believe that this theory actually is hypothetical, the more you say, oh, you can never lose your salvation, and therefore you'll never have to repent, and Christ will never have to be crucified, the more you believe that's the view, 
then the less that that view carries any weight or warning. The point of a warning passage is, do not do this, or this will happen. Okay, like, do not do that, or I will give you the spanking of your life. The point of a warning is to threaten you or something, or get, or even just say you will die if you run out in the street. That's not a threat, that's just a horrible reality. Then it needs to drive you, it needs to spark you a little bit. It needs The whole point is the warning is supposed to motivate you. But if I'm like, oh, this can never happen, then it's no longer a warning. So the more and more I believe that it's hypothetical, the more and more I believe it can never happen, Therefore, the less and less weight it has in my life to warn me against doing whatever this sin is. And then the more and more I believe that this is the right view, then I just say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It can't happen. And then what was the point of warning me? Does that kind of make sense? And so, and I think this is another insult to God because this is like God saying, if you do this, it is impossible for you to ever repent and come back and you're like, well, whatever, God, that can't happen anyways. We all know that. And you're like, oh, yeah, you're right. It can't happen. But I still want you to respect me as a God who makes warnings and follows through, even though I don't do that. You know how offensive that is? I mean, we know that we lose respect from our children when we don't follow through on threats and warnings or disciplines or punishments. And now you're saying the God of the universe is like that too. Well, then now every warning becomes whatever God. We know that this one won't happen, so that probably won't happen too. And then he's just this pushed over substitute teacher. Right? And so the reality is that doesn't work. It's and I feel like view two, view one just totally disrespects the love and the sacrifice of God. And view two and three disrespects God as well. Or sorry, yeah. So that brings us to the fourth and only view left. And that says, these people are not saved, but they have been living a salvation-like life. So therefore, they are not genuine believers, and they can never be saved after they do this. Now, let me break that down more. Enlightened. Was not the wilderness generation that came out of Egypt... Were they not enlightened to who God was? When you and here's a greater context. You put the context in the wilderness generation. If he spent three chapters, two chapters unpacking that, that becomes the framework for everything else. So the wilderness generation, they were enlightened. They saw the plagues of God. They saw God defeat the greatest gods of the entire world. They literally saw the giant pillar of God. I mean, they saw the light of God. You don't get any more enlightened than that. And it led them out. They were baptized. They placed their faith in the blood of the Lamb. And yet they walked away from it completely and said, I don't want this. Tasted the heavenly gift. Oh, yeah, they did. They tasted the heavenly gift of their salvation out of Egypt, of bondage, of slavery. They tasted the heavenly gift of no longer being under oppression. They tasted the literal heaven of give, heavenly gift when that bread came down, the quail came down, the water came out of the rock. And yet they said, we're still hungry. This is not enough. You just brought us out here to kill us. We're going to go back to Egypt where we ate and got better gifts than this. 
become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Oh, they partook of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And we talked about Saul partook of the Holy Spirit. David partook of the Holy Spirit. Judas partook of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he literally stood in the physical presence of Jesus Christ for four-something years. He he looked really Christian. In fact, they allowed him to keep all the money. Become tasted the good word of God. They tasted the word of God. In fact, the point that the gospel, the, the writer of Hebrews said back then was, did they not hear the gospel and respond just like we have? Yet God swore in His wrath that they will not enter His rest. They experienced the word of God. They placed their trust in the word of God. They experienced the miracles of the coming age. The coming age was the promised land. And they got a whole lot of that experience with the ten plagues, the deliverance, the baptism, the pillar of fire, the water coming out of the rock. I mean, the, rock, the water coming out of the rock is Christ, according to Paul, and that's the coming age is Jesus Christ. And yet they said, this isn't good enough. This isn't sufficient. I'm still thirsty. I mean, Jesus says, I'll give you water, and you'll never thirst again. They drink of the water that came from the rock, and Paul said the water is Christ, because rock is Christ. And they said, this isn't satisfying me. Which means they really weren't drinking like they should have. Now, analogies only stem on three legs, so I don't want to like make you think, oh, you can drink from the Holy Spirit and not be satisfied. Because this is water and Holy Spirit, big differences. And yet, when they came to God, they finally said, we've done all the Christian things, we even placed our faith in the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb was crucified for us, and we placed our faith in that. And they said, we're done. We don't want you anymore. We don't believe in you. In fact, we think that you want to kill us and destroy our life. We want to find a new leader who will take us back to our past life so we can live like that, because it was better there than it is with you, God. They looked very genuine. They experienced all these things. And yet, ultimately, and they shook their fist at God and said, forget this. And so it fits the greater context of the book. God is not saying you can lose your salvation. That's heretical. God is not warning you of something that He will never do. That's disrespect to Him. God is not saying you can lose rewards here. Because that disrespects the cross. God is saying that there have been people who have committed themselves to a certain place. Their life has changed and they've walked through the motions. They've accepted the crucifixion of Christ, not in a literal indwelling of the Holy Spirit that saved them and toned them of their sins, but in a, I agree with that, that's really cool, I'm attracted to that. And that's all it was to them, was belief in American sense not believe, trust, and faith in a biblical sense. And nothing changed in their life. And they said, see, there you go. I don't have the joy. I don't have the peace. I don't have the hope that this thing promised. I'm chucking the whole thing out the window and I'm going back to some other path. And we know people like that. And some of them were scared to death that they might not be able to come back. And that's why we don't like this passage. But in reality, if you remove the emotions, we know that there are people like that. And that's the scary thing, because here's the reality. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that an angel can ever be redeemed. We talked about that. 
Because they have experienced so much of God that to stand in the full presence of God, they rejected it. Therefore, there is no crucifixion for that sin. Therefore, if you lived in the, I mean, the Christian church, the Christian faith, and you've gone through all this stuff, and you looked at all it, and you said, you know what? That's not good enough. I don't think Christianity is sufficient. I don't feel satisfied. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. I'm going to go after atheism, Buddhism, Hinduism, something else. I think those will satisfy me more than the cross. Then they have rejected Christ and full knowledge of who He is and what He's done. What is there to bring them back to? In the same way that the Israelite nation said, Okay, God, no, 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 we'll go into the promised land. We really want the promised land this time. And God said, No, I am not letting you. There's a point where a Christian will say, a non-Christian who looks like a Christian will say, I won. I went back in. And God says, No. And that's scary. It's so scary, so smacks in the face of the gospel presentation that we're so used to that we don't want this to be the answer. But you can't get around it. It literally says it is impossible for you to ever come back to God, which means you've left Him because Christ has to be re-crucified again and that's not happening. So it's either a loss of salvation or it's that you were never saved but you learned and experienced so much that there's nothing new that you can learn or experience. Now, this is all throughout the Bible. In the First Testament, there's the high-handed sin. And the high-handed sin is when you grew up in Judaism your entire life, you had the Torah memorized by the age of 12 years old, and there's a point when you came to the age of accountability and you said, screw you, God, I don't want anything to do with you, and you walked away. And there was no sacrifice anywhere in the First Testament for that kind of a sin. Which means you can never, ever come back from that. When you get to John, chapter 5, it says, if anyone commits a sin that does not lead to death, then pray for them. But I'm not telling you to pray for the one who commits a sin that leads to death because there's no point. So there's a sin that John says, if they're committing this sin that leads to death, don't even waste your time praying for them because that's not going to get answered. That's scary. Because we're told to pray in all things. And John comes along and says, but don't pray for that one because that's a waste of time. That's scary. I told you Matthew 25, when did we see you, Lord, and not? I don't know who you are. Go to hell. Now, our translations are a little nicer than that, but that's what he's saying. To the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The parable of the soils. Some fell on the... Look, all the seeds went into the soil. All the, most of the seeds started sprouting. But the ones on the rocks got choked, the thorns, and they died, and they did not grow into life. Therefore, they did not persevere. And you can't say that they're saved because God says He is faithful to finish the work that He began in you. So either you really weren't saved, and that's why your seed didn't grow to full height, or God failed you. And I'm not going the second. 
because God doesn't fail. And He's promise that He'll finish the work He began in you. So the passage, they went apart from us because they did not belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would never depart from us. So departing from us, they showed that they never, ever even belonged to us. So they're looking at these teachers. I talked about that passage last week. And they're thinking, all these are believers. In fact, we should learn from them. And John says, but after a while they left us. And in fact, their leaving shows that they never, ever, ever even belonged to us at any point, which means no matter how much you thought that they looked saved, in fact, so saved that they were teaching you, they were never saved to begin with because that's what it means that they were never a part of us. And we can go on and on and on with perseverance and perseverance and perseverance in the Bible. And so here's what's so scary. You can reach a point where you can't repent. And it's not because God's not capable of forgiving you. It's because God says, I will not. And why does that strike us so horribly wrong? One, because it's not the God we're used to. But God is never in the box that we always put Him in. And two, we have made salvation so shallow and so easy in Christianity, and America, sorry, that when anybody ever requires you to actually put some perseverance and work and faith in, we want to go back to the sticker and the stamp that I got in my Bible at four years old as proof and evidence that I'm saved. There's no fruit, no works, no evidence at all that you're saved, but I keep justifying my salvation by that stamp or that date in my Bible because I went forward and said, yes, I believe in God. And I've can show you all the check marks on my Awana memorization verses. And ultimately what we're doing is saying, works, 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 works. See, I'm saved. Look how committed I've been in the church. But nowhere have you really truly pursued God on your own. When people talk about the joy and the peace and the hope that passes all understanding, you don't know what they're talking about. Because your hope and peace is based on your circumstances. D.A. Carson tells a story of a a guy who grew up in the faith. He was the epitome of Christianity. Discipled, went to seminary, became a pastor, all this kind of stuff, and got married, going into ministry. He was groomed for everything. And then eventually what happened was this younger woman came along. He was married with kids. And he just followed her and chucked everything out the window. And the pastor who groomed him and sent him to the seminary and was discipling him as a succeeding elder really struggled with it for a long time. How did he not see it? Did that say something about his faith, his relationship with God, his discernment? And after a year of prayer, I remember D.A. Carson said, he, when he talked to the guy again, he said, how are you doing? And the guy said, I've ultimately began to realize that he never really was saved. God has led me to these passages over and over, and I already knew what these passages said, but I never had a real-life thing in my life. And so I began to realize that in this guy's life, there was never any trials. He came from a really good Christian family, a really good Christian church. Growing up and studying the Word was easy for him. It was always there. And in everybody in our little town, that's what everybody did. So there really wasn't an opportunity to go anywhere else and do anything else. So the Word of God was always rare, was always done. And he went off to seminary, and, and our church paid for his seminary. And, and he went off to that, and it was so easy because he was surrounded by people there and all that kind of stuff. And then he finally got married, and the, the marriage was a girl that he had known for his entire life. And 
And then he was the first time ever where he really had to make a difficult choice between God and the world. And he couldn't choose God because God was just the path he was on and not a real relationship. And there was never, ever any other opportunity in his environment to really, truly be tempted to go another route. Not that he wasn't tempted with sin, but to really say, do I want to chuck the whole thing or do I want to embrace it? And I think we know that. There's some people grown up a Christian family. I mean, all of our kids at a certain point. I mean, my girls, they haven't had an opportunity to really say no to Christianity. There's not really, I mean, they go to Christian school, they're in a Christian home. We talk about it. Natasha loves God, don't get me wrong. But she hasn't presented with a very attractive alternative yet. Now, my hope is, I don't want to give that to her yet. I want to train her up enough so that when that opportunity comes, she can resist it. But at the same time, as a good parent, I've got to introduce those opportunities a little bit here and there over time because it's better for her to be faced with those and challenge them when I'm in her life than when she's on her own. And so, yes, my child needs a lot of scaffolding and shelter right now. But eventually that's got to be removed. Little by little. So she's just not, the whole thing tears down and there you go, the world. And so that's the reality here. It's impossible for them to come back to repentance. And that's scary. But that's the truth. Now, two things. I'm sorry we don't have time for the assurance. (laughs) But read on. The assurance is coming. The assurance is coming because I mentioned this last week. I don't want to leave you with this fear. So a couple of things. First, John seems to suggest that we actually can know when that person's coming in that sense to stop praying. I don't feel confident in that one right there. So I would say this, is I don't really think we can really know when someone's committed that sin unless God specifically comes down and says, stop praying for that. And remember, everything is not by our flesh. We don't think, well, check, 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 check. You must commit that sin. I'm stop praying. That's me. So we don't look at other people's lives and say, well, you're condemned. And stop. You stop when God clearly reveals to you to stop. Until then, you assume that there are a Christian, like I mentioned last week, but they just need more discipleship or that you need to keep praying for their salvation. Or both. This isn't meant to judge and condemn other people. The second thing I would say to this is this should actually inspire us and motivate us all the more to be involved in other people's lives and discipleship and teaching them true church disciplines, true walking with God, not the shallow say the prayer and you're in, and then, and I know that there's a lot of church. A lot of you probably come from backgrounds where your church never did that. That's, I'm not saying that everybody in America has done that, but for a long time we have, and and, and really start saying, you know, Jesus didn't say go out and share the four spiritual laws and move on. He said go out and make disciples, which implies witnessing and conversion, but also makes it very clear: don't stop there. And I've come from churches where there's been a lot of gospel presentations and a lot of sermons, but very little one-on-one discipline. Very little. In fact, when that's brought into the church, it's almost frowned upon because 
don't you think you're expecting too much from people? I've actually been told that. That's scary. So that should make us rethink the way that we do discipline, the way we do faith, the way we communicate the gospel presentation. But one last illustration. So Ray Comfort is an evangelist. He's a great evangelist. He's got this illustration talking about the book of Peter. And he says, too often in Christianity, we offer everybody this parachute called salvation. And we say, hey, if you put this parachute on, it's going to make your life a lot better. And you're going to have done it, done it, done it, done it, done it, and it'll be good. And that's our gospel presentation. If you really think about it, that's our gospel presentation a lot. And then what happens is that person puts that parachute on and says, yeah, because my life kind of sucks right now. And we put on the parachute and we sit down in the airplane and you can't sit in the airplane right. It's really uncomfortable. And every time something bad on the plane comes, it just, you know, once there's something really bad or really uncomfortable, every little thing after that just becomes this huge nuisance and irritation. And just reminds you all the more that this plane just is not fun. So when the flight attendant spills coffee on them, they're like, oh my gosh, this is dumb. This parachute's... You can't get out, and the person's squeezing through you and bumping your face, and everything becomes the parachute's fault, right? Because that's why you're leaning forward. That's why people are hitting you in the face. That's why she couldn't get the coffee to you, right? That's why, that's why, that's why, that's why. And when the trials and suffering come, you are told that this will make you happy. And all you have to do is believe it. And eventually you say, that's it. And you see everybody else on the plane who's sleeping and napping and they're not having that and that and that and you take the parachute off and you chuck it and you say, I'm done. But if you come up to somebody and say, this plane is going to crash and burn and we are not going to make it to our destination and you are going to die, guarantee, and it's going to be a horrible, miserable, painful death and the only thing that's going to save you is this parachute. It's not going to make your life incredibly comfort and easy go, but it will bring you joy and peace knowing that it will give you life because it will save you from the plane crash. And there's going to be trials, and it's not going to be fun, but every other option out there, all those parachutes have holes in them. But this one works, and it was packed by the greatest packer there is. Then you put that thing on, and every time somebody smacks you in the face, it reminds you of what's going to happen. When the coffee spilled on you, it's just all the more reminder that you need this parachute, and it actually makes you cling to it even more, and understand it more. And the more bad things that happen to you, is just a reminder that that big and bad thing is coming, and it makes you want to learn how to pull the strap even more, and to depend upon it more. And maybe even know the guy who packed it because there's other people who don't have packed parachutes and you don't want to die them. Them die because you're beginning to get to know them better. And then when that plane crashes, you pull it and you survive. And all those trials you went through just made you cling to it all the more and you didn't die. And Peter says that's what trials are like. Trials. Christianity is not to make your life happy-go-lucky. Christianity is not about believing in something. Christianity is about this world's going to crash and burn and we're all going to end up in hell. And there's only one parachute called Jesus Christ who's really truly giving you access to heaven and compassion and mercy and hope. 
And you will go through trials. But as you go through trials, let that draw you even more to God. Let it draw the crap out of your life, the way you respond in the flesh. And let it reveal to you so He can scrape it off and you become refined like gold. Let it remind you that this is who you really are with Christ. That's why you need Him even more. Let it make it more dependent upon you because there are no atheists in foxholes. And every time something happens, it reminds you that there is a judgment coming. And then all the more that you want to share this parachute with everybody else and the ultimate packer. So that when this thing all ends up in judgment, remember, the resurrection from the dead, eternal judgment, hope. The resurrection of the dead is your parachute. And the judgment from the dead is a plane crashing. That is a whole different twist on that. Because that's why the wilderness generation chucked God. Because it wasn't as perfect as what they made it out to be in their mind. And they were getting so much from God. But every time something little happened, it was just a reminder how they're not in the promised land yet. And that's what they wanted. Rather than being told, life is going to be hard. And the only way in the promised land is this pillar of fire. And Egypt's not getting you there. It's a whole different gospel presentation. Now, that doesn't mean you have to present all this doom and gloom. But I don't think we necessarily leave the fire and the brimstone sermon behind completely. Because when Jonathan Edwards gave a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of Angry God, the world teaches that one and stops and says, See, you evil Christians. But they didn't read the sermon that came the next Sunday about the amazing grace and love and faith of God is so. They both need to be there. Unfortunately, America has forgot about the first one. We will continue this discussion next week. So this is not an end-all wrap-up. This makes you completely satisfied. This will keep going. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for who you are, for the amazing God you are. I pray that this would cause us to respect you and revere you and love you and desire you and to be that into other people's lives even more than to say, that's not right, and walk away. I thank you for their faith, that they're willing to go late tonight (laughs) in order to understand your Word of God. I thank you that they keep showing up to understand your Word of God. I thank you that that is not so with those that are here, and that they do have a desire and pursuit, or that it is growing into something more because you are faithful to finish the work that you've begun in them. We praise you. Amen.